is the branch of knowledge related to the study and interpretation of, uh, of a document. And in Christian terms, particularly the interpretation of the Bible. It is a difficult but rewarding study to learn how to read the Bible better. It is an integral part of any good seminary education, and I think that any pastor worth his salt will seek to help his people grow in the ability to read the Bible well. And so, totally free of charge, I'm going to give you the first three rules of proper hermeneutics. If you're taking notes, write these down. Before I do that, though, there are some things that I want to uh, quote for you. And um, I trust you've heard these before. You've probably heard them uh, in uh, any kind of church context or just a regular conversation amongst Christians. And as you've heard these things, I want you to think about how you've heard them said. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. If God is for us, who can be against us? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I believe the most quoted Bible verse, at least in our day, from the Gospel of Matthew, judge not. These statements are all wonderful truths that we need to embrace with our hearts, with all of our hearts. However, each statement on its own can be easily misunderstood and misapplied because on its own it lacks perhaps nuance, thoroughness. And so here are the first three rules. Context, context, context. If you want just one statement rather than three burdensome rules, you can write this down. We need to beware of Bible slogans without context. Because while it's true that each of those statements that I read are true, are perfectly true, quoted directly from the Bible, apart from the context in which they're originally penned, they can be used to say untrue things, or at least unhelpful things. And so I think our passage here this morning has fallen prey to this kind of poor interpretation that ignores Context. It's likely not one of the more familiar uh, of these misquoted texts, but I think, nonetheless, uh, confusion has resulted as this uh, text has been used inappropriately at times. I think it's very likely that if you have heard this passage, uh, either preached from a sermon or even just quoted before, that it may not mean exactly what was said that it means, or perhaps even what you might think it means today. And so as we look at our text, I want you to remember that principle. Beware of Bible slogans without context. Hold on to that. It will prove useful as we make our way through this passage. 
So as I've already mentioned, we will be looking at verses 8 through 13, and I want you to notice three things as we do so. First, I want you to notice Paul's command to remember Jesus Christ. Second, I want you to remember and notice the, the freedom of God's Word, despite Paul's imprisonment. And third, notice God's faithfulness. First, let's consider the command to remember Jesus Christ issued in verse 8. Paul urges Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. In the beginning verses of 2 Timothy, Paul is working to prepare Timothy to keep on in ministry after Paul is gone. In many ways, that's what the whole book is about. He is exhorting him to follow the example that Paul had set before him to guard the good deposit that Paul had entrusted to him. And he was to entrust this to other faithful men. Remember, Timothy is serving essentially as a pastor, the church in Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to him to encourage him to endure suffering and to do the work of the ministry. And to this end, he tells Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. And he gives him two things in particular to remember about our Lord. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And so let's look at each of those in turn. First, he tells Timothy to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. If Timothy is going to have any success in ministry, if he's going to experience any kind of fruitfulness at all, if he is going to endure and finish his race, it is here that he must begin. He must begin with Jesus Christ risen from the dead. In his book, Christ in Conflict, John Stott wrote, Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. This is what Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses, verse 3 and following. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He says this is of first importance. If Timothy is to fight the good fight, he must hold fast to that which is of first importance. He must remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, of course, by reference to Jesus' resurrection... In 2 Timothy 2, Paul is intimating here the entirety of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He can't remember the resurrection and forget the crucifixion or forget the perfect life that Jesus led. Because apart from the others, none of these acts individually is of any value to us. Let me show you what I mean. If Jesus lived a perfect life in total submission to God perfectly fulfilling every point of the law, and yet he never died, we would still be in our sins, since our sins 
would remain unpaid for. No sacrifice or sin would have been made. On the other hand, if Jesus had not lived a perfect life, but he had attempted some noble death for sinners, his death would not benefit us because he would be no more fit to pay for the sins of others than you and I are. Even still, if he had lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and yet remains to this day in the grave, his sacrifice would stand ultimately as nothing, since we would have no assurance that God had accepted this sacrifice. It is the resurrection that is God's stamp of approval on what Christ has done. If Christ is still dead, we are still in our sins. And so it is necessary for Christ to have done all of this. If he was to save even a single sinner, he must have lived a perfect life as man under the law. He must die a death as one who had broken the law, though he had not. And he must, through the rights of his sinless life, overcome death, hell, and the grave, breaking sin and death's dominion over man in his glorious resurrection. And so Paul exhorts Timothy to remember the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. He tells Timothy also to remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. In many ways, the significance of this statement piggybacks on what we were just saying. If Jesus is not the offspring of David, then he has no right to the throne of David. One of the most, most important passages in all of the Old Testament is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is where we read of the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7 verse 2, we read that David wants to build a house for the Lord. But through the prophet Nathan, the Lord tells David that it isn't David who will build a house for the Lord, but it is the Lord who will build a house for David. In verse 11, we read, this is the Lord speaking through, prophet to, uh, through Nathan to David. He says, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And down in verse 16, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It is through this son of David that the kingdom would be established and really, we can trace the significance of Jesus' lineages on past uh, David, because he's not just the offspring of David, but of Abraham, and beyond that, of Adam. The point here is simple enough. Jesus, as the offspring of David, of Abraham, of Adam, is the one for whom we have been waiting ever since that fateful day in the garden when death entered the world through sin. 
Christ has come and is the only one ever who was capable of dealing the death blow to sin and establishing God's kingdom and rule and reign in the world. Well, notice also that Paul says in regards to these two things, he says, Timothy ought to remember them as preached in the gospel. It is this Jesus that we are to remember. How many times have you heard someone say, well, well, my Jesus would, would never do that. Or, or my Jesus, he would, he would do this. It doesn't matter so much what your Jesus would or would not do if he is not the Jesus revealed to us in the gospel. Paul is urging Timothy, and he is urging us the same, to remember Jesus Christ, the one who actually came down from the Father, who was actually incarnate by the Virgin Mary, who actually lived a sinless life and perfectly fulfilled God's law so that he might be an acceptable sacrifice on behalf of guilty sinners, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God for them so that they would be made alive and able to enter into right relationship with God through faith. It is this Jesus who, after he was crucified, died. He was then buried, but three days later rose again. And after appearing to many, he ascended into heaven and is right now seated at the right hand of God, where he will rule and reign over the universe until he comes again to consummate his kingdom that he had established and inaugurated at his first coming. And there he will welcome his church, his bride, to rule and reign with him forever. And there he will cast away all who have rejected him into everlasting torment. It is this Jesus. Remember him. Do not turn your mind and your attention to a Jesus of your own making. We know what the Lord has to say about the idols of our own making. We read in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now this text is referring specifically to physical idols made out of wood and silver and gold. But can we say anything different about the idols we make in our own hearts? Even if they are idols that we call Jesus. No. We must commit ourselves to Jesus Christ as preached in the gospel. And we may not imagine him according to the designs of our own minds. And so if you are in here this morning and you are not a Christian. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
If you are not in Christ, I offer to you now the Lord Jesus. Will you take Him? Will you have Him? Will you quit living upon yourself? And will you live for another? Will you forsake your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ that He might have mercy upon your poor and helpless soul? Sinner, now is the time. Jesus endured, and yet He was cut off. He was faithful, and yet He was denied. All this so that people like us might live. Do we love our sins enough to go to hell for them? My prayer is that there is not a person in this room for whom that is true. Well, secondly, in terms of our main headings this morning, I want you to notice in verses 9 and 10, the bound worker and the unbound word. We've said that God's word is free despite Paul's imprisonment. Paul says in verse 9 that it is for the gospel that he is suffering as a criminal, bound in chains. You can find Paul's own summary of his sufferings uh, as an apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. But for now, I want to zero in on the next sentence. The word of God is not bound. What comfort this ought to provide the Christian. Because here is the lesson. No matter what your circumstances, God's word will do its work. You may feel bound and trapped. You may actually be bound and trapped. But no matter, God's word isn't bound. We see this very thing over in Acts 28, verse 30. Paul is near the end of his life in a Roman prison, but there he is free to preach the gospel. This is what we read there. Paul lived there in prison in Rome two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. As to his own will and plans, Paul is unable to do anything. As to his ministry in the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom in the world, there is no hindrance whatsoever. And so remember, beloved, though you may be weak and feeble, bound and chained by your own ailments or the world's oppression, The Word of God is not so limited. God's Word today, as it was in Paul's day, is not bound. We may look at the community around us and the world beyond that and perhaps despair. When we think about our own weaknesses, when we think about our own limitations, we may despair. But we need not think this way. We shouldn't focus our attention merely on the present resources that we have at our immediate disposal. May we remember that the Lord will accomplish all His holy will. God's Word will reach its intended goal. 
It is going out to the ends of the earth, and it does not return void. It cannot. Paul leads by example in this regard. He says in verse 10, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Anytime you see the word therefore in your Bible, it's always good to stop and ask, what's the therefore therefore? It gives the logical deduction of the previous statement. If it's true that the word of God isn't bound, Paul can then rightly and safely say and believe that he can suffer all manner of of persecution and oppression for the sake of the elect and God's word marches on because of his assurance in the unassailability of God's word and those whom God will call to himself and those whom God has called to himself. God Paul can endure so that we may obtain the salvation that is found only in Christ Jesus. May we be like Paul here. Are we willing to lay our lives down so that others may come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you willing, believer, are you willing to give up the temporary glory that comes from this world in order that many sons and daughters may come to see and savor the glory that never fades. Are you willing to say with Paul that the sufferings of this life are minuscule? That they are but light and momentary afflictions compared with the weight of glory that will be revealed in us on that day? God's Word is not bound by our weaknesses and our sufferings. Many times I think we often believe that when we suffer, that everything is going wrong and perhaps we are failing. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Often your sufferings perhaps might mean the exact opposite. That God's word is doing its work through you. Well, thirdly, we come to the faithfulness of God. We've considered the command of Paul, the freedom of God's word, and now the faithfulness of God. Look in verses 11. Most commentators agree that Paul's reference here in verse 11 to uh, this faithful saying, he says the saying is faithful. Well, what saying is that? Uh, Most commentators agree that it's a reference to a particular saying about the Christian life which was circulating in Paul's day, which we have pinned for us in the rest of 11 and on through 13. It contains four lines. Four conditional if-then statements. Two of them are positive. Two of them are negative. Positively, we read, if we have died, then we will live. 
If we endure, then we will reign. Negatively, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And I want to look at each of these four lines uh, quickly in turn. But before I do that, I want to also quickly put the the saying in the context of Paul's overall argument and and consider why why he uses this saying here. Initially, it might seem like a bit of uh, like out of left field a little bit. Well, one of the main themes in the book of 2 Timothy, if not the main theme, is that of perseverance, endurance, especially in the midst of suffering. Over and over again, Paul reminds Timothy of this truth. In a couple of places, he says things like this. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, In the last days there will come times of difficulty. Chapter 3, verse 12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Chapter 4, verse 5, Be sober-minded, endure suffering. Over and over again, he's telling Timothy that he must prepare for suffering. He must endure. He must keep going. He says, don't give up. Don't be ashamed. Work hard. Stay focused. Paul then is telling Timothy to remember Jesus Christ in this passage and to consider Paul's own example so that he might endure to the end. And to this end of endurance, he employs this well-known saying to uphold his larger argument. The Christian life is one of perseverance, of endurance. Let's look more closely at these two sets of statements. First, the two positive statements. He says that death brings life and endurance brings a crown. If we have died with him, that is with Christ, we will also live with him. If through faith, as Romans 6 makes plain, you have been united to Jesus Christ in a death like His, you will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. If we have died to the old man, if our position in the first Adam has been abolished through the death of Christ, the second Adam, and our union with Him, then our union with Christ through faith, in that union we shall be made alive. This is what C.S. Lewis was getting at when he wrote the following in his book on miracles. He says, He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked ever since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Well, next, we learn that endurance brings a crown. And in these two lines, there's a progression of thought. We move from dying with Christ and therefore living with Him, to enduring with Him, and then reigning with Him. 
It's one thing to die with Christ and so begin the Christian journey. It is quite another to endure with Christ and so finish the Christian journey. It's one thing to live with Christ and so escape the clutches of the second death. It is another to reign with Him and so tread down death under our feet. And so the saying goes, if we endure, we will reign. What a glorious thought. This is what Paul says over in chapter 4. In verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so let me ask you this. Have you loved his appearing? Do you long to be able to say with Paul, I have fought, I have finished, I have won, I didn't fall away? What joy awaits those who endure to the end? Life is difficult. The road to the celestial city is paved with many trials and tribulations now. But for those who endure, no one has imagined what the Lord has prepared for you. Well, we need to consider the negative statements as well. They offer an important word of warning to us. And this is where what we said in our introduction will really come home for us. I'll remind you of the, the three rules, context, 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 or we need to beware of Bible slogans without any context. He says that if we deny Him, that is, if we deny the Lord, then the Lord will deny us. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. Now, it's, that, it's the last of those two lines that I think is particularly misunderstood. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. Most of the time that I've heard this verse quoted, it's used to say something like this. If we are faithless, God is faithful to save us. We need not fear condemnation because of our faithlessness, because God is faithful. The problem with this line of thinking in this passage, if, we, that's, if that's what we're saying that line means, the problem is that it's really the exact opposite of what the whole passage is saying up to that point. Paul is saying that if we haven't died with Christ, if we don't endure, if we do deny, if we are faithless, then we will not live and reign with God, but he will deny us. Why? Why would God ever deny us? It's because he is faithful. But that begs the question, faithful to what or to whom? He is faithful to himself. Look what Paul adds. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
He doesn't say, for he cannot deny us, but he cannot deny himself. How should we respond to this then? If this verse is saying that God is faithful to himself, and so it doesn't necessarily imply some willingness on his part to save us despite our faithfulness, is, is that what we're saying? Should we be struck with utter fear and terror? What if we slip? What if we fall? We are human beings after all. Does God's unswerving commitment to his own name and his own glory mean that we're all doomed since we surely recognize our own weaknesses, our own inabilities, our own frailty, our own sinfulness, our own faithlessness? Well, here are a few thoughts along those lines that I think will help. First, we should note that this denial, this faithlessness, is not some kind of momentary lapse in our resolve. We're not talking about the the daily slips and falls up the hill of difficulty along the the path to the celestial city. These aren't references merely to proving unfaithful in times of trial, or a temporary shrinking from confessing what we inwardly believe to be the truth about him, what we're talking about is an utter rejection of him. A total quitting our hold on the truth. Passing over entirely into the region of unbelief. If we should estrange ourselves entirely from the common ground of faith and prove ourselves never to have truly believed in the first place, still he remains faithful to his true declarations and promises. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon mine. But we need to ask the question, though, is it possible for anyone to have died with Christ who will not also endure? We can be sure that those in whom he begins the work of life will bring it to completion. Philippians 1, 6. We must endure or else we prove our profession of faith and and life invalid. But if you have been born again, if you have been united to Christ and so died to sin and are alive to God, then you can trust that God will strengthen and enable you to endure all the way to the end. Also, while it is true that if we deny him, he will deny us, it's critical for us to remember that if you have died with Christ and are now alive with him, and you have been united to Christ, then God's name and His glory are in fact bound up with you and your salvation as well. If you are in Christ, you can no more fall from grace than can the Lord Jesus Christ. Because death no longer has dominion over Him. You see, He was forsaken so that you might live and not be Forsaken. Christ has won his eternal inheritance, never again to be separated from his Father's love. The day that God no longer loves his Son, 
is the day, believer, that you can fear. That day, the day when he goes back on his word to his son, is the day he will go back on his word to you. And guess what? That is never going to happen. Well, let's land the plane here and let me offer three very, very brief points of further application. First, remember Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The one true gospel. It is critical for us to preach and teach and believe the gospel as it is given to us by God in his holy, inerrant word. Second, do not fear to take risk for the sake of the kingdom of God. You are weak. You have limited resources at your disposal, but God is not weak. His word is not bound, even when we are. And third, keep striving. Because God is faithful, namely to himself. Remember, you must keep going. Keep fighting. Keep striving. Because those who deny Him, who forsake Him, who ultimately turn from the path and they quit fighting, those will be the ones who stand before Him and say, Lord, Lord. And He will say, Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. But don't forget this either. Because He is faithful to Himself, He is faithful to you. He is faithful to His promise. And so if you have died with Christ, you will live with Him. If you endure, if you press on, if you fight the good fight, if you finish your race, then you will also reign with Christ forever. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word to us this morning. I pray, God, that you would use your your word in our hearts, in our lives. That you would uh, bring it home to our hearts with power. God, despite the frailty of your servant, pray, God, that you you would bless us, you would teach us, that we would... We would know and love the truth here for us this morning. Do you bless us, O oh God, and change us. Make us to, to look more like Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. It is in His name that I pray. Amen.